0: We are going through a study on Wednesday nights of how we got our Bible and whether or not we can trust it. Uh, we saw that um, it's a good question that everybody needs to ask since we consider it to be the sole authority for our um, direction in doctrine, for our direction in righteousness, for our, uh, our direction in um, eternal salvation. We, we need to be able to establish whether or not we can trust this book or not, because everything we do is based around this word, right? And so we have been trying to answer that question, and we have answered it uh, quite a bit, but there are still several other things that we're going to cover. Uh, does everybody have a, a little study guide that um, anybody in here that doesn't have one? you don't. Heidi don't have one. Nathan, do you have another one? Okay. <clears throat> and we are on page, let me see. One, two, three. We're on page four of our study guide. Um, We are going to be at the bottom of that page where it says preservation. And so basically we want to answer the question, how can one be sure that the revealed and inspired written word of God, which was recognized as canonical, or that word is just basically a term that means it has been established as being sacred, God-inspired, um, Uh, God-written, God-breathed, if you will. And so how can we determine that all of these scriptures that have been recognized as sacred by the early church has been handed down to this day without any loss of material? And as I told you last week, that is a very important question for us to answer because the Bible has been translated and down through so many different human hands. And how many of you know that human hands um, cause a lot of problems? And so it is a legitimate question that we need to be able to look at and answer. And I don't believe that we're wrong as a church for doing that. I believe we are wise as a church for doing that. And so we're going to look through that tonight. Just very quickly, I want to remind you that what we found out is that God has given us His word through, first and foremost, revelation. In other words, He revealed Himself because God is invisible, but He Manifest Himself through creation and through many other ways. One of the ways we saw was um, Moses through the burning bush. God manifested Himself that way. Uh, we also saw through prophets of the Old Testament that God would speak to men and He would reveal uh, the era of man and He would reveal the, the will and desires of God for man. And so um, we also saw that God revealed Himself through, of course, Jesus Christ and He revealed what um, what was required of us in Jesus and how we should walk according to uh, righteousness. We have seen that um, God revealed himself through the apostles. And, so, uh, and all of these people, you remember from our study, that the scriptures told us that uh, the question was asked, how will we know that a prophet is truly of God? And the scriptures answered that for us. God, God said, the way you're going to know that a prophet is from me is whenever the thing that he speaks comes to pass, then you will know that that was a word that I gave to him. And so ultimately we saw throughout several scriptures in the Bible that whether it was prophets or apostles, that there was always evidence in their lives to back up that they indeed were sent from God, that they indeed had been spoken to by God. And so he never expected, even the apostles' ministry, and I took you through this and showed you this, so I'm not going to back up and do that again. But even the apostles' ministry, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit worked through them in very powerful ways, in ways that we don't see anymore in today's time because the purpose for the kind of ministry that they had was to evidence that God indeed was with them, that they could be trusted, that the gospel that they preached could be trusted, And you could bank your life on it. And so whenever we look at the, like for instance, we talked about the the ministry of Paul. And the Bible told us that God worked extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. That even when people who were sick touched handkerchiefs that he had touched, what happened? They were healed. And the Bible talks about the same thing, that God worked extraordinary miracles through through the hands of Peter so that, even when people, when Peter's shadow was cast over over them, they were healed. You know, we don't see those kind of gifts anymore. And the Bible explains to us and teaches us that this was evidence that their ministry was indeed one directly from God himself. And it should be trusted, it should be followed. And so whenever we have the revelation that was given to them, the Bible says that all scripture was breathed out to people like prophets and apostles Uh, through the Holy Spirit. And so one of the things that we found out is that the way that we're going to know that what a prophet spoke when he said, thus says the Lord, is there was going to be evidence in his life, that extreme evidence. Let me say that. Not just that he was a good person or that he did a few things right, but there was extreme evidence. Uh, uh, Moses, as the first prophet that wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, Parted red seas, called on the plagues over all of Egypt, uh, brought water from a rock in a desert. Um, uh, there are so many different things that the that the prophet Moses was able to do that that prove that the people should follow him, that the people should listen to him. And then uh, other prophets, um, you, you name it. I don't have to go through all of them again. But again, I'm in the apostles like Peter and and Paul, but also the the Bible says I think it's in Acts chapter two that God worked extraordinary miracles through the hands of all the apostles. So it wasn't just Peter and Paul, but it was all the apostles that that did this. And so again, whenever we look at the revelation that God gave through the inspiration to the prophets, to the apostles, we see that this is how the Word of God was handed down. And another another way that we know this, the, the way that the early church determined what books were actually going to be um, canon or they were going to be considered sacred scriptures the way that they determined that came down to three basic things number one does it have an apostolic or a prophetic influence there is no book in your bible today that does not have a prophetic or an apostolic um, influence in some way Uh, even the ones that were not named after a certain apostle were written from the teachings of that apostle. For instance, I think we said that, if I remember correctly, Mark was influenced, Mark wrote the gospel, but it was Peter that gave him the gospel to write. And so it's Peter's eyewitness account that Mark is writing. Or Luke, uh, even though he was not an apostle, it was Luke was Paul's penman. And so that's the reason why... Luke records Acts because he followed, walked with Paul, went with Paul, and basically he recorded everything that Paul taught and everything Paul did. And so Acts, even though it was written by Luke, Luke, even though it was written by Luke, Luke, it came from the apostolic influence of the Apostle Paul. And so that was the first thing that it had to be. Another thing, it had to have scriptural unity. And so it had to agree with all the other teachings of, of the Bible. And so everything that had been established from the time of Moses, through all the other prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, if it did not, everything that came from the apostles even had to agree and have scriptural unity for it to be included and considered sacred. Another thing is that the whole church had to recognize its scriptural truthfulness. And so the church as a whole had to come together in the early church and determine that All of these things were in fact true of these particular writings. It does, it is uh, prophetically or apostolic um, influence. It is um, in agreement with all the rest of the scripture. And because those two things align, the church could come together and recognize it as a sacred writing, as delivered from God himself, revealed through the apostles or through the prophets. And so those were three of the main things that they used to be able to make sure that the the books were considered. Another thing we found out is that uh, in the very last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, it's recorded that Jesus himself spoke to the men on the road of Emmaus and told him, he said, he opened the scriptures to them, the sacred writings to them. He opened their eyes to it and he taught them, beginning with the law of Moses, going all the way through the Psalms, the Proverbs, the and all the prophets, he says, and he showed how it was all about him. And so ultimately, Jesus Christ himself affirmed the, the sacred writings of the Old Testament. And since Jesus is the one that commissioned the apostles, and they proved it through the life that they lived to write the letters of the New Testament, then again, you see sufficient evidence there to understand that This indeed is God-breathed, and it's not just any book, if you will. So again, today we get to the question of how can we be sure that this revealed and inspired written Word of God, which was recognized as canonical by the early church, has been handed down to this day without any loss of material? Furthermore, since one of the devil's prime concerns is to undermine the Bible, and I highlighted that, This is the devil's greatest trick when it comes to Christians and people who are following God by faith, is is he tries to undermine the word of God. Like for instance, when you skip over to the next page, (coughs) it says, in the beginning, he denied God's word to Eve. We find that in Genesis 3, verse 4, and you should remember that. This is the way he attacked Eve. He came to her, and you remember what he said? What was his first few words? Did God say? Did God really say? In other words, can you really trust the word of God? And so ultimately, what the devil did was threw shade on God's word and questioned his trustworthiness, question his faithfulness. And so this is one of the very first attacks that was made. Satan later attempted to distort the scripture in his wilderness encounter with Christ. And you remember that. Every attack that he came to Christ and. Every, every time he came to Christ with an attack, it was always against the word of God. He would say, uh, do this, because it is written that so, 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 and then Jesus would come back to him and correctly interpret that verse for him and say, yes, it is also written this and this and this. So in other words, the Satan is very good, the best, at taking God's word completely out of context. And the way that Jesus countered that was he put God's word back in context. And he followed it according to its context. And so that was another attack on it. You'll see here that through King uh, Jehoiakim, he even attempted to literally destroy the word of God. Go there with me to Genesis chapter 36. I'm sorry, not Genesis, Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 36, let's look at verse 27, or start at verse 23, I'm sorry. We're talking about the Word of God here, okay? As Jehudah read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot. Until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when um, Elnathan and Delilah Deli- and Jamara, I'm butchering them, I know, but even when they urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiah, the king's son, and Sarai, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdel, to seize Barak, the secretary, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Barak wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And here's what it said. Take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll. Where, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And concerning Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, You have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut it off from man and beast? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, He shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night and I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, but they would not hear. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Nerai, who wrote on it at the, di- at the dictation of Jer- Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to them. So there again, one of the things that we're trying to see here is that throughout the ages when the word of God was given, the devil and even uh, human, sinful human beings have tried every way in the world to destroy this word. They don't want to hear the word of God, right? And you can remember when you were, I don't know about you, but I remember when I was living in sin and I was not a born-again Christian, I didn't want to hear the word of God. I didn't want I didn't want to hear it. Um, I can still remember when me and Chastity first got married um, I was not a born again Christian but at my old church that I was raised at they threw a baby shower for us and I can remember watching that uh, pastor come down the steps making a beeline for me and I got up because I knew he was making a beeline for me and I went to the back of the room went out another door tried to run down the hallway to get away from him because I knew he wants to talk to me about the word of God and I don't want to hear it it's just that simple And so, yes, sinful man and Satan have always tried to attack the Word of God, but throughout these centuries long, God has always protected, God has always preserved it, and God has always found a way to make sure that His Word continues on, no matter what Satan tries to do to it, no matter what man tries to do to it, the Word of God is still here today. So, keep reading with me in your study. God anticipated man's and Satan's malice towards the Scripture with divine promises to preserve His Word. The very continued existence of Scripture is guaranteed in Isaiah 40, verse 8, which says this, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. And even in 1 Peter 1, verse 25, you can see the same thing quoted from Peter in there. This even means that no inspired scripture has been lost in the past and still awaits rediscovery. The word of God has not failed. Any word that God has spoken, Satan has not been able to shut it down. Man has not been able to burn it or destroy it. It has preserved and it has prevailed throughout centuries long, even until today, and it will continue throughout forever and ever. Look at the next part of it. The actual content of Scripture will be perpetuated, and that can be translated, continued indefinitely. Let's read it like that. The actual content of Scripture will be continued indefinitely, both in heaven, and you can read about that in Psalm 119, 89, and on earth in Isaiah 59, 21. Thus, the purposes of God, as published in the sacred writings, will never be thwarted, even in the least detail. Let's look at a few of those scriptures. Go with me to Isaiah 59:21. Isaiah 59, verse 21. And as for me, this covenant with them says the Lord. So who's speaking here? The The Lord. Lord is speaking, right? This is what he says. My spirit that is upon you, talking about Isaiah, the prophet, and my words that I have put in your mouth. Remember, that's how we got the word of God. is through revelation and inspiring through the prophets, through the apostles. And then he says, And my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth until when? Forevermore. In other words, every word that God inspired this prophet to speak, it is going to be with his children, with his children's children from this time forevermore. God promises that His Word is going to continue on throughout all eternity and not one jot or tittle is going to be removed until it has been accomplished. Alright? Let's see where we see that at. Go with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. Matthew 5, verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. What is an iota? The smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. Not one iota and not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. All right. So, again, here we have the promise of God that his word is going to stand forever. Look at another scripture with me. Look at Matthew 24:25. Matthew 24 verse 25. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, Look, he is in the wilderness. What do you do? And why do you not go out? Go back to the beginning. What do you say? I have told you beforehand. In other words, the word of God has been spoken to you and you better believe that this is the way it's going to happen. So anything that happens contrary to to the word that I give you, then what do you do? You don't. You ignore it. You don't listen to it. You don't follow it. So again, see, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Why? Because I told you beforehand. The word of God was spoken beforehand and if it's already been spoken, Anything contrary to that, don't listen to it, don't believe it, you walk away from it. That's pretty cut and dry, right? And we could go on through there. We'll look at one more, Mark 13, verse 3. Let's begin in verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? So in other words, Jesus has been teaching them about end times, right? So the word of God has been given to them. Now they want to know when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying I am he and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. And so anyway the point being is that he gives them the word of God and then he tells them. It's going to happen exactly as I tell you it's going to happen. And when you see the things happening that I said is going to happen, then you'll know the times are getting close. The times are near. And you can look at the last in yourself, Luke 16, verse 17. But moving on down your study, it says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. You see how many times God said, it shall, it shall, it shall? The point being this, no matter how hard Satan tries, no matter how hard man tries to destroy the word of God, and they want to, they will not be able, because God has promised that not a single iota, not a single dot is going to pass away until all of it has been accomplished. So now let's talk about the transmission of this preservation. How was the world, how how did this preservation uh, hold up through the transmission of the Bible? Notice it says, since the Bible has frequently been translated into multiple languages and distributed throughout the world, how can we be sure that error has not crept in, even if it was unintentional? It's a good question, right? As Christianity spread, it is certainly true that people desired to have the Bible in their own language, which required translations from the original Hebrew and Aramaic languages of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament. Not only did the work of translators provide an opportunity for error, but publication, which was done by hand copying until the printing press arrived in 1450, it also afforded continual possibilities of error. Through the centuries, the practitioners of textual criticism, a precise science, have discovered, preserved, cataloged, evaluated, and published an amazing array of biblical manuscripts from both the Old and the New Testaments. In fact, the number of existing biblical manuscripts dramatically outdistances the existing fragments of any other ancient literature. And that's whether you're talking about works of Shakespeare, whether you're talking about... Um, I mean, no matter, you look at any um, nation of old and the writings that they have, none of them have the amount of original manuscripts that we have of both the Old and the New Testament. Like, for instance, the Old Testament still has some thousands that exist of original manuscripts. When I say original, I'm talking about a Masoretic text uh, that was basically the traditional Hebrew text of the Bible or whether we're talking about the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Um, right in that area we have thousands of original manuscripts that you can go to museums and look at today to be able to uh, to reference to. We also have over 5,800 Greek translations of the New Testament. So 5,800 manuscripts of Greek translation. Now, Admittedly, some of those are just fragments that have been found, but there are still many, many original uh, full versions of the, the New Testament written in the Greek. You have over 10,000 original manuscripts of the Latin translation of the New Testament. 10,000. You have over 9,300 Syriac, Slavic, Ethiopian, or even Coptic um, uh, uh, translations of the New Testament. So, So there you've got thousands upon thousands of original manuscripts of the New Testament and you have thousands of original manuscripts of the Old Testament to which we are still able today to take the translations that we have and go back and compare to all of the original manuscripts that we have. And if we have thousands upon thousands of the originals to compare, how hard would it be to get an an accurate translation of the original text? The answer is it's really not that hard to get an original and to be able to say definitively that it is without error. For instance, if you can come up with over 10,000 original manuscripts, and you can compare those 10,000 so that basically they all come into agreement on every verse of the Bible, can't we walk away from that saying according to thousands of original manuscripts, we can say with a fact that we have come to an original translation of the original text? So again, I, 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 that's that's very good evidence for me. But let's keep reading because it doesn't stop there. The end of that paragraph says, <clears throat> In fact, the number of existing biblical manuscripts dramatically outdistances the existing fragments of any other ancient literature. By comparing text with text, the textual critic can confidently determine what the original prophetic, apostolic-inspired writing contained." Now, what I'm not telling you tonight is that there aren't Bibles out there with errors. There are translations out there that I would look at you and say, run away from these things. The Bible even warns us that it is possible for people to add to or to take away, right? There's a warning that you not do that. So I'm not telling you that every Bible out there is without error, but I am telling you that we are able to have in possession with us today Bibles that can be traced back to the original, that we can affirm, that they have been held without error, and that they still are in the same revelation and inspiration that was given when they were originally handed down. And that's pretty wild considering how old these manuscripts are when you think about it. So, keep reading with me. Although existing copies of the main ancient Hebrew text, and basically that's called the Masoretic text, and this is just a... um, the, the Masorites, or Masorites, however you pronounce it, they were a group of Jewish rabbis that were um, given the mission to determine again what was actually ca- canon and what was not. So they were given the task of being able to look back and determine which, ones, uh, which one of these Old Testament books came from a prophetic influence it was proven that the evidence was there. And we can see that there is scriptural unity between them all. Uh, they had that task at first. And so um, that, that's what you're reading about right there. It is the traditional ancient Hebrew text. And it dates back only to the 10th century A.D. To, so they, this, these Masorites continued all the way to the 10th century A.D. Two other important lines of textual evidence bolster the confidence of textual critics that they have reclaimed the originals. First, the 10th century AD Hebrew Old Testament can be compared to the Greek translation called the Septuagint. So basically you have the Masoretic that was the the Old Hebrew, and then you have the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of that, and those two being original translations can be compared. And then it says here, when it's compared... There is amazing consistency between the two which speaks of the accuracy in copying the Hebrew text for centuries. So again, you can go all the way to the 10th century when these Masorites were still um, translating the Hebrew Bible all the way to the 10th century and you can go back and you can compare all of their text and all of their manuscripts to the Greek translation of the Old Testament and there is Amazing accuracy between the two. And then it goes on and it says Second, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 to 1956, manuscripts that are dated uh, 200 to 100 BC, proved to be monumentally important. After comparing earlier Hebrew texts with the latter ones, only a few slight variants were discovered. And now let's talk about some of those variants because, again, I told you last week, God don't bat 99%, right? God hits 100% every time. And so what do we do about these variants? Well, let me give you an example of some of the variants between our translation of the Old Testament and the Dead Sea Scroll translation of the Old Testament, which was 200-100 B.C. Here's some of the variants. One of the variants was Goliath's height. Goliath's height. So in in the uh, Masoretic text, basically what we come up with is a Goliath was somewhere around 9 feet tall. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, we come up with Goliath being about 6.5 feet tall. So there is a variation, right? But let me ask you a question. Does that change anything as far as doctrine is concerned? You still have a kid, David, with a sling and a stone, and you still have a 6'5 or a 9-foot tall giant with a sword and armor and a shield, and yet he still drops him with a pebble, right? So they still are in agreement with that, but that is a variation that we have to look at and consider. Another variation is that in Psalm 145, the verse for one Hebrew letter is missing. So, for instance, in the, um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the, in the verse that we have, the version that we have, Uh, Psalm 145 basically is written according to the, the Hebrew alphabet. And so each line of it is written with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The next verse goes to the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, there is a verse that is left out with one of the Hebrew letters. But it's in the Masoretic text in our Bible. And so there are some, and here's what the verse says. God is faithful in His words and gracious in His deeds. So, with that being left out of the Dead Sea Scrolls, does that change any of our doctrine at all, that God is faithful in His words and gracious in His deeds? Not at all. So again, uh, there is a variation there, but there is absolutely nothing about that that changes any doctrine, any belief, because every Christian will agree. No matter what denomination you are, every Christian will agree that God is faithful, that God is faithful in all of His words, right? And every Christian would agree that God is gracious in all of His deeds, right? So again, that variation doesn't concern me. Another variation comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6, and instead of saying that um, that the fear of God or the reverence of God, it says the loving of God. So instead of fear or reverence, it the Dead Sea Scrolls replaces that word, that one word with loving instead of where our other text says fear or reverence. And I still say that they are all in agreement because I don't care whether you talk about the fear of the Lord, you're still talking about the reverence of the Lord and you're talking about the love of the Lord. For instance, the fear of my dad. I love my dad, but I feared my dad because, and it was a fear that drove me to him because it didn't want to drive me away from him because I knew that I couldn't run away from daddy. Sometime I got to come back home, right? I wasn't one of them kids that thought I could run from dad. I was one of those kids that knew I got no choice but to go to dad because my only place of safety is being right with him. And that, my friends, is a good definition of the fear of the Lord. It's a fear that is indeed fear, but it's a loving fear. It's a reverent fear. It's a fear that drives you to Him, not away from Him. You understand what I'm saying? And so I don't care whether you translate it loving. I don't care whether you translate it fear. I don't care whether you translate it reverence. They all three encompass the meaning of what is presented in that text. Uh, Another place is that the Dead Sea Scroll is missing Psalm 32. So every other psalm is there. But in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Psalm 32 is not there. And that led some to question whether whoever translated the Dead Sea Scrolls questioned the authenticity of Psalm 32 or not. Um, But still, the fact of the matter is, is that when you go back and you read Psalm 32, again, take it out or put it in. It does not change any doctrinal belief that we have whatsoever and so the variants that we see in this are not variants that affect our interpretation of the word of God whatsoever not even in an iota not even a dot of it changes our doctrinal beliefs no matter whether it's there or it's it's not there and so those are some of the variants that that are there and so back to the um, end of that paragraph that we read After comparing the earlier Hebrew text with the latter ones, only a few slight variants were discovered, none of which changed the meaning of any passage. Although the Old Testament has been translated and copied for centuries, the latest version was essentially the same as the early ones. So again, if you take today's translation of the Old Testament and you compare it to the Dead Sea Scrolls, you compare it to the Masoretic text, you compare it to the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, no matter which one you compare it to, they agree in 99.99% of everything, and that .01% that it doesn't agree in does not change any belief, any doctrine, any meaning of any passage that, that we have in that. Now to the next page. Somebody tell me what time it is. I left my phone in the car. 22. All right. The New Testament findings are even more decisive because a much larger amount of material is available for study. There are over 5,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts that range from the whole Testament to scraps of papyri, which contain as little as part of one verse. Few existing a few existing fragments date back to within 25 to 50 years of the original writing. Now that's pretty interesting to me. When you can get that close to the original writing, I think we've got something that we can pretty de- definitively say that if our text can still be in agreement with that, I can say we got a pretty accurate translation. That's all I'm saying. Keep going with me. New Testament textual scholars have generally concluded that 99.99% of the original writings have been reclaimed. In other words, the the original manuscripts, we can lay our hands and our eyes on them today, right now. 99.99% of the originals, all right? And number two, of the remaining 100th of 1%, there are no variants substantially affecting any Christian doctrine, with this wealth of biblical manuscripts in the original languages. Now remember, thousands upon thousands of both Old Testament and New Testament. I'm not talking about a handful of Old Testament and a handful of New Testament, even though even that, if they were original, would be enough for me. But I'm talking about thousands upon thousands of original manuscripts and so he says here that there are there is a wealth of biblical manuscripts in the original languages and with the disciplined activity of textual critics to establish with almost perfect accuracy the content of the autographs any errors which have been introduced and or perpetuated by the thousands of translations over the centuries can be identified and corrected by comparing the translation or copy with the reassembled original. Let me give you an example of that. Our ESV translation that we preach from today. The reason I preach from it is because it is a word for word translation from the oldest manuscripts. So, let's say you've got. Let's just. I'm just throwing this number out here. Let's say you've got ten thousand original. Um, New Testament manuscripts We know there's more than that Let's just say you got 10,000 Out of that 10,000 The oldest Put this in there The English Standard Version Would go when they translated it With the oldest Earliest manuscripts That they, that they could find Some of the newer manuscripts May include something That was not in the older manuscripts And so the ESV would put a footnote down here and they would say beside of it, some manuscripts include this and this and this. That's the reason why if you have an English Standard Version, there are some verses that are not there. There are some verses that are missing. An example of that, you remember the story where uh, Jesus was talking to the lame man by the pool of uh, Bethsaida, I believe it was, and He says, hey, do you want to be healed? And the man says, well, yeah, but every time I try to get up when the water is stirred and go down, somebody jumps in front of me. You remember that? There is a next verse in the King James Version and some other translations that will say, For an angel stirred the water, and whenever... The, the the people that got into the water first, when the water was stirred, then they were healed. And I'm paraphrasing that. That's not exactly what it said. But you, you remember what I'm talking about, right? There you go. John chapter 5. In the English Standard Version, you're not going to have that verse in there. I think it goes from verse 3 to verse 5 or verse 4 to verse 6 or something like that. And the reason being is they'll put a footnote at the bottom that'll say, The oldest manuscripts did not include this section about the angels stirring the water. But the reason why other people put it in there is because they went with maybe majority manuscripts. and So if the majority of the 10,000 manuscripts that we had, again a generic number, but if the majority of them included that, then King James and some of the rest of them went with it. The ESV's goal was to try to stay as true to the original text as possible. And so they went with the earliest manuscripts, whereas other translations would go with majority text. Everybody understand what I'm saying? But now let me ask you a question. And Because here's what many people think. Many people think the reason why that isn't in the earliest manuscripts is because it wasn't something that was originally there. Why was it added to it? They believe some well-meaning scribe knew the Jewish tradition that... Because how many of you actually believe? Does God tell us anywhere that an angel goes down and stirs water and that's the way we get healed anywhere? No, no. And so the many people believe that some well-meaning scribe understood that the Jewish tradition in that time was that an angel stirred the water. And when it began to bubble up, maybe something underneath the ground, y'all know how like in Yellowstone and many places are uh, hot springs or whatever. Many believe that that was a Jewish tradition. And so this well-meaning scribe put that in there to explain almost like commentary, if you will, that this is the reason why they were trying to get down into the water when it was stirred. So does it change any meaning to that text, whether that is there or that's not there? No, it doesn't. And so again, the English Standard Version, they put it in there, but they put it as a footnote, and they left it out of the main text because they wanted you to understand the earliest transcripts that we have did not include this in their manuscript. However, when you look over thousands of original manuscripts, the majority of them may have put it in there. But because the English Standard Version, their main goal was to stay as true to the original as possible, they left that out and decided to put a footnote at the bottom that there are some manuscripts that do include this. Another thing, that, another variant that you would see <coughs> in John chapter 8, I believe it is. In John chapter 8, there is a story about a um, uh, an adulterous woman, a woman that was caught in adultery. Y'all remember that? And the Pharisees brought her out and they say this woman was caught red-handed in adultery. The law says she is to be stoned. What do you say? And you remember the story. Jesus gets down in the dirt and he begins to write something. And then um, he says, you who are without sin cast the first stone. And when he looks back up and when the woman looks up, her accusers are no longer there. Jesus looks at her and says, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, they're gone. He said, well, then neither do I accuse you. You So basically, here's the point. The English Standard Version will put it in that section of John chapter 8. But there are many transcripts that may place that in Luke chapter 21. There are some manuscripts that may actually place that story at the end of John, somewhere toward the end of John instead of in that section. And so there is some question according to the manuscripts, where does this event actually go? Now, the English Standard Version, if you have that Bible and you turn to John chapter 8, you'll see a note at the top of it that, uh, who has the English Standard Version? Somebody go to John chapter 8 and tell me, what does it say at the top of it? The footnote. There you go. So again, the point being is that they're going to put that section in there, But they're going to let you know that the earliest manuscripts do not include that in this part. But again, whether you put that there or whether you put that in Luke chapter 1 or whether you put it here, does it change any belief? Does it change any doctrine? None at all. So again, the variants that we have here in the different manuscripts are nothing that we should look at and go, Ooh, I don't know if we can trust the Bible. Because the originals don't line up and they don't work. No, I don't care what variants you look at, they all come to the same type of, um, of of thing that we have there. So when you have the English Standard Version translation, which I preach from, that's the reason why there will be some verses that are missing in different places, but there will be a footnote at the bottom that will tell you. Some manuscripts include this, but again, the goal, and I appreciate their goal, because I think that, the only Word of God without error was in its original form through the prophets and the apostles, all right? But I do believe that God has preserved His Word and God has protected His Word so that today when we get as close to that original as we can, and I believe we do with versions like the English Standard Version or even the King James Version was a word-for-word translation. The only difference was the King James was adapted from majority text instead of earliest text. That that was the primary difference. Another difference was King James was written in Old English. These and thou's and a language that you and I don't speak anymore, right? And so the English Standard Version is modern English language, still a word-for-word translation. No words are left out. This was my problem originally with the the very first editions of the New International Version, the very first editions were not, I I, I believe I'm right in saying that. Don't quote me on that. I think it was the New International Version. But anyway, I don't think it was a word-for-word translation. Now, the the latter, I think since the 90s, the New International Version has been a word-for-word translation. There you are, Paraphrase. There was a lady in our church, I'm not going to call her name, but she had a Bible that she brought every Sunday, every Sunday. And just out of the blue, one night in a group that we have, she slides this Bible over in front of me. I'm not even looking at it. She slides it over in front of me, and she says, what do you think about this Bible? My daughter gave me this Bible back in, I can't remember what, the 70s or something. And I looked at it, and on the cover of it, it said, Holy Bible, paraphrase. And I told her, If I were you, I would put this Bible up on a shelf somewhere because your daughter gave it to you back in the 70s and I would hang on to it just for that reason. But if you really want a Bible that reflects the original manuscripts, you need to find you a translation that is a word-for-word translation from the original Hebrew and the original Greek. That's not the one. And this, again, this is what I look for when I look for a translation. There are many translations out there. If any of you study the Message Bible, throw that thing in the garbage. Throw it in the garbage. There are there are many different translations of the Bible today that they were more concerned about readability than they were about accuracy of the translation. I'm wanting a Bible that, yes, is readable, absolutely, but it does not sacrifice Uh, the word-for-word translation from the original text. And I believe that whenever you can combine those two, you have a very good translation of the Bible. What time is it, Francis? 1053. All right. Let's go just a little further. (coughs) (laughs) Why why are y'all laughing? (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. All (coughs) right. So, We can rest assured that there are translations available today which indeed are worthy of the title, The Word of God. And then the next paragraph says, The history of a full English translation Bible essentially began with John Wycliffe. And this was the first English translator. This was back in the days when the priests and the Catholic Church would not allow you to translate the Bible. Matter of fact, it was illegal for you to own a copy of the Bible. The only way you could get a copy of the Bible, only way you could get the word of God was through the priest, through the teachings of the church. And and as you all know, that's the reason why we're Protestants today. We have protested much of what they did in that in that tradition. But John Wycliffe was a Catholic priest, but he recognized that it was not the way that it was supposed to be, so he became a reformer, and he actually was one of the first translators of the Bible into English from the Latin. And that was around 1330 to 1384. And he made the first English translation of the whole Bible. Later, William Tyndale, and this was a translator from which um, when he translated the Bible, many versions and even the King James Version came from his translation. But um, he was the, one of the next ones to translate it in English. He also died for this. He was strangled and burned at the stake um, as a result. Uh, actually, I, I hang on. I'm kind of telling you a few up there. Right, But the reason they did that was because he protested the king of England's divorce of one wife and marriage to another. They protested that and as a result of that, the the king found a way to accuse him of things and that's why he ultimately burned at the stake. But his last words, his very last recorded words were, Lord, please open the eyes of the king of England. And then since that time, there were four translations that were commissioned by the King of England that came from William Tyndale's translation. Uh, the Geneva Bible, uh, there, were, there were several versions that came as a result of, of William Tyndale. And then in Miles Coverdale followed in A.D. 1535 by delivering the first complete Bible printed in English. By A.D. 1611, the King James Version had been completed. Since then, hundreds of translations have been made, some better, some worse. Today, the better English translations of the Hebrew and the Greek scriptures include the New King James Version, the New International Version, and the New American Standard Bible. Now, this was written, this study was written before the English translation came out, and this study was written by this man that I'm going to show you a two-minute video. Nathan, do you have that? This man that you're fixing to read about telling you about the ESV, wrote this study right here. Um, And this is what he has to say about the ESV translation. Are they on? It's only two minutes, so after this we'll, we'll stop here. But I just want you to see that the New King James is absolutely a great translation. The New International Version is a great translation. The New American Standard Version is a great translation. And then the ESV that we, tra- we translate from was developed in the 2001. And this is what he has to say about it. Version. I am more than excited about that because I'm very much aware of the fact that ESP has taken the evangelical world by storm. It is the newest and the freshest, and by far the best translation. It retains all Do you hear that? We'll find this is all brand new. Material. It'll be contained in the ESG version of the study bible And in addition to that, of course, the explanation of the text. And at the end of the day, that's what's really important. I can't describe to you how beautiful this file is laid out. I'm going like that. The interior design, the capability, the facility, which will be able to move through the notes. I would encourage you to get a copy of the MacArthur study bible I'm not trying to to sell you on going out and buying you a MacArthur Study Bible, all right? What I'm trying to get across to you is that when I read this to you, I wanted to make sure that you didn't go, well, wait a minute, this study only says that the greatest translations are uh, the New King James and the New American Standard and the New International. I want you to understand that this study was written before the English Standard Version came out in 2001, so this study you're reading was probably written in the, maybe the late 70s or early 80s for all I know, uh, but still the point being is that uh, the man that wrote this study would now, if he rewrote it, what would he say to you about the best translations of the Bible? According to that right there, he would tell you that, so that, that at least one of the best translations out there is the English Standard Version, and again, I have studied the way it was translated enough to know that I trust it. Wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly, I trust it. And so um, I pray that you understand that when I preach from it, I, I preach from it believing that it is the unadulterated, um, the um, inerrant, authorized word of God. And we can bank our lives on it. So next week. <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah, yeah, the reverse is missing. And you did not. Uh, Yeah. Right. Yeah, when I first started preaching out of it, Fagan came to me and he said, I threw mine in the garbage. (laughs) I said, Brother, you might want to go get that back out. (laughs) And and again, this is this is where you get so many pastors and people that are King James Version only. You know, and it is because they don't understand how the Bible was translated throughout the centuries. They don't understand that even the King James Version went back to the original Hebrew and Greek text. And so I don't care which translation you go from. The question is, is it a word-for-word translation from the original Hebrew and the original Greek? And if you can answer that question, then more than likely we can determine that it is indeed a very good translation of of the Bible. Uh, And when you combine that with readability like the ESV... Um, then I believe that you get a fantastic translation of the Bible for you and I today. But that's the point. I would close with this, and this is the end of it. We'll pick up next week on um, the summing it up up on that page right there. So the point is we have thousands upon thousands of original manuscripts to compare from. For anyone to look at and say that we cannot have a translation of the Bible today that can be trusted, that is accurate, because there are many faiths today that will say to you, well, we believe it as far as it's translated correctly. But then many of those have to have their own translation of the Bible. All right? I have a problem with that because I do believe wholeheartedly that God Himself has promised in His Word that He is going to preserve it that he is going to make sure that none of it fails and none of it goes away until every bit of it has been accomplished. And so I truly believe that we can have, and I do believe we do have, an accurate representation of the original Word of God in our hands today.